Howard's dead. Howard? This morning he was alive. He was standing right in front of me, you know? He told me he was thinking about buying a bandsaw, and now he's dead. Wh who's Howard? I was supposed to make that delivery. If he hadn't asked to make that run, it would have been me. I mean, it was supposed to be me. Oh, yeah, but, I mean, you, you can't be so hard on yourself. It's not your fault that you're alive and, and Howard's dead, whoever the hell Howard is. What's that got to do with anything? Uh, well... Oh, Flashman, you always miss the point. Let me repeat it again, okay? It would have been me. I would have been dead. Dead. Me. Dead. Do you ever stop to think about dead? That's Maggie O'Connell and Joel Fleischman talking about death. Very heavy subject to start off the episode. Yeah, it's a heavy subject, and you can tell that Maggie's already feeling the central theme of the episode, guilt. She feels that she is responsible for Howard's death. Yeah, and also, you know, that's a good point. You know, guilt plays a big part in a number of storylines in this episode. Uh, she's feeling guilt here, perhaps. Uh, you know, she's she was supposed to go on that flight. But also what I've found really interesting about this little soundbite here, this conversation, is, you know, I don't want to say that Maggie is a selfish character, but I think that sometimes, like, that is sort of a character trait, like that, you know, it's very true to Maggie uh, in that, you know, in this little conversation, she says, no, you don't get it, Fleischman. That's not what I'm talking about. I could have died. It could have been me. You know, it's, well, I mean, it's really putting it into perspective, but also it could be viewed as selfish, maybe from Joel's perspective. He's like, you know, it's not your fault. And she's like, no, it's not, it's not a matter of fault. It's a matter of me nearly dying. Like death uh, or life is um, uh, so delicate, maybe. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I think that Maggie is a self-serving character. Uh, she wants to preserve her sense of being, which you kind of need to if you're an individual that had to live by herself and had to strike off on her own. You yeah. need that sense of being able to survive out in the wilderness, both metaphorically and the Alaskan wilderness. So I can see that it's not necessarily like a widely negative trait I would yeah. view on Maggie. I think you nailed it. Yeah, it's not necessarily like a selfishness, but more of a like self-preservation it just, I don't know, for some reason, it speaks very true to her character. I don't want to paint her as selfish necessarily, but uh, but Charles, what are we talking about here? All right. So what we're talking about here is Northern Exposure, 1990s CBS television series. My name is Charles, and this is my co-host, Lee. That's right. And every episode, we like to overanalyze the show and bring someone on at the end of the episode, someone who has uh, typically never seen the show. Uh, and get sort of an outsider perspective, but also expand the reach of the show. It was a very popular show while it was running, but you know now it's, uh, it's sort of uh, fallen along the wayside, uh, kind of outside of public view for some reason. It's uh, it's not available for streaming anywhere, but uh, I'm surprised at uh, how many people still watch it and how many of our guests enjoy the show. But I guess we should say about this particular episode that we're watching, it's the ninth episode in the fourth season. It's called Do the Right Thing. And Charles, we were talking about uh, last episode when you were predicting what might happen. You know, maybe this has something to do with the the hit movie that came out around this time, the Spike Lee uh, joint, I guess I should say. Did you know that uh, Spike Lee films, he, he calls them a Spike Lee joint? Wait, why? I think he still does that too. You know, I mean, he's made some very... Uh, 
I guess I wonder like what is his most um prestigious film and is it called a Spike Lee joint? It would be do the right thing, right? Like that's the one he's most widely known for. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just trying to think of like I think you're right. That that's definitely his calling card. That was kind of his biggest hit and sort of like his claim to fame early on in his career. Wonderful film. Though I don't think it reflects too much in this episode. I would say though, I guess Maggie's storyline kind of fits the title the most. Well, it's got a little bit of it on the other storylines, I would okay. say. Like yeah. Maurice's storyline, you can see him trying to grapple with yeah, true. Betraying yeah. his country, and that comes from within because <laughs> it was a action from the past, something that he can't change. And you can see it a little bit in Holling's storyline of whether to give up his pride yeah. in uh, running the brick. Yeah, I guess it's very catch-all. It's a very catch-all title. Unfortunately, no Spike Lee references. But let's see. We can say that this episode uh, originally aired on November 30th, 1992. It was written by Diane Frolov and Andrew Schneider. They've worked, uh, you know, all over this show. I think they're producers as well. And it was directed by Nick Mark, who has become quite a regular director on this show. Um, I think his first appearance as director was on All is Vanity back in season two, but he did some great episodes in season three. Um, Wake Up Call, which is one of my favorite episodes. Animals Are Russ. Uh, I, I think he even did the season premiere. Bumpy Road to Love. He's all over this season at this point. Oh, okay. So we got some tried and true people running this episode, which I got to say, it was, uh, I thought it was like middle of the road. I, I didn't think that it was particularly too uh, egregious, but I also wasn't too blown away. Yeah. I, you know, we were talking about this before recording, Charles. You know, we're, we're returning to this show after sort of a, a winter vacation, though I guess, uh, you know, to, to spoil the secret, this is actually, we're recording on, New Year's Eve right now, Charles. So happy New Year's Eve to you. Yeah. Happy New Year's to you too. Yeah. And that, you know, please excuse any fireworks you might hear in the background. You know, it could get noisy. And also Charles, your your dog might respond to some fireworks. Yeah. Like most dogs are really afraid of fireworks, but mine, uh, for some reason says like, I got to match the, <laughs> the sound level of the fireworks. Like every time it goes off, I go off. It's like, a let's challenge. Go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so that's what's going on over here. But yeah, we're going into 2021 with uh, a podcast episode right here. Yeah, and so I was what I was trying to say is, you know, it has been a little bit of time since we've been watching the show. We took a little break. Uh, we're in the middle of the break, but decided to record today. I will say, yeah, it's been nice to return to Sicily for me. It's This is one of those episodes where it just, it feels very... The world always feels so lived in, and I think that's that's what's great about this show is that if you're tuning in every week, you know, it's just wonderful to go back and visit your friends and just this cozy town of Sicily. But I will also echo you, Charles. This was kind of a more boring episode for me. Um, yeah. It also doesn't help that I don't agree with, um, uh, what would you call it? Like... It's that thing that you say to end the episode is the most powerful moment where Joel or like the main character is trying to explain the thesis. Oh. Uh, and in this particular episode, I didn't agree with it. Interesting. Uh, fundamentally, from my own core being, um, that's applicable just to me. Interesting. I can't wait to get there. Yeah, I'm. Uh, there's a lot to talk about there, but I think maybe let's start with well there. <sighs> I was going to say maybe the Victor storyline, that kind of interweaves itself into everyone's storyline. 
So maybe we shouldn't start there. Maybe we start with Maggie O'Connell because that's kind of the the bite oh, okay. that we started with. Well, maybe we can set up Victor here. Let's let's say so. This episode, the town of Sicily, uh, is visited by a guest star. This character of Victor Bobrov, I think Victor Bobrov. He's a sort of this Russian ex uh, KGB, uh, maybe spy or you know investigator or some sort, and he is bit of a freeloader on the town. Like he appears in a lot of scenes and instead of paying money, uh, he offers intelligence, like sort of dossiers. I think in the very first scene he'll, he'll offer, um, or in an early scene with him, he offers Maurice a dossier, you know, on Maurice. Like he's like, this is the information that I've dug up. Yeah. He brokers in intelligence. So he lives and breathes it and he trades for it. That's how he barters for um, food and shelter apparently. And yeah, he's a disruptor on the town of Sicily because like you said before, he weaves himself throughout all the other storylines and is the reason that they even come to fruition right there. So for Maurice's case, he comes in and he kind of ruins this image that he has for himself. And for Joel, he kind of goes in and kind of strikes at his core of his identity right yeah. there. And all of the other characters kind of feel the reverberations from him. Uh, by the way, I, I want to say also, in the beginning, whenever he's kind of talking to Maurice about all his accomplishments and stuff, I always forget that Maurice is a decorated a hero. Yeah. And I, I like it when the show actually does that and goes more into it rather than depict him as a buffoon or a bigot. I, I like that he has some gravitas behind him, that there's a reason that he's respected. I, I think they should lean more toward that because I think that's a really interesting dynamic whenever you have that and then you compare it to the other old man in the town, Halling, who is also respected and revered, but not because of his accomplishments, but because he just has wisdom behind him. Yeah. Whereas Maurice is kind of like, oh, no, like it's what I've done that defies me. That's interesting. Yeah, let's stick with Maurice actually uh, to start. And and that's a great distinction. Hauling sort of um, brings, you know, wisdom with his old age, whereas Maurice maybe doesn't have the wisdom, but has the experience. It's very kind of two sides of uh, that same coin of, of old age. Wisdom, experience, maybe you're lucky enough to have both. But in this case... Yeah, I, I love seeing Maurice's uh, sort of backstory fleshed out a little more. We know that he's an astronaut, but also was, I guess, in the Air Force, uh, decorated, as you say. This Victor Brobov, sorry, Bobrov character, uh, enters Sicily with this dossier on Maurice that Maurice will end up, he actually just buys it off of Victor. I think he's too, uh, well, Maurice says to finish uh, to help work on Maurice's memoir that he's been writing throughout, I guess, last season and this season. I think he started that in season three, right? Yeah, I want to say it was a season three edition, and they don't reference it all the time, so I, sometimes yeah. I forget that he's writing <laughs> forget it. forget that he's still writing it. Yeah, it's, it's nice to continuously have that storyline with Maurice. Though. But yeah, he buys it outright from him for $8,000 instead of the $20,000 that he wanted right there. Yeah. Now, I want to say... How how is this man Victor? How was he not dead? Like how has the KGB not killed him yet? <laughs> yeah, like if he has all these secrets, how did he just make out like scot free? Um, we uh, I guess we get the sense that he has no money, or is he just because the uh, I, like I said he's kind of like freeloading. He's like playing a fast one on a lot of the townsfolk. He doesn't pay any money throughout the entire episode. He actually gets 
Ed and Shelly to buy him free drinks and buy him free food. And anytime money is brought into the picture, he trades with the intelligence, you know? So maybe he's like escaping Russia or I don't really know. Um, you're right, Charles. Like, how is this man, <laughs> how does he have all this information and he's still allowed to live? I guess maybe maybe some of it is that this uh, this information is so old that it sort of, you know, has uh, little consequence. You know, the, the idea that, as you mentioned, uh, Charles, earlier in the episode, Maurice maybe betrayed his country, but uh, Victor says, you know, it's not that big of a deal. Like you, maybe you did this, but it, you know, we already knew about that before you even leaked this delicate information. That is true. But there's some sensitive information in there. Like he proclaims or like self-proclaims that he knows what causes the assassination of JFK. Yeah. He says it was done by... The president of Egypt, right? Gamal Nasser? Yeah, Gamal Abdel Nasser. And it's actually really neat. I had to look it up on who this man was and his relationship with JFK because I didn't know if that was like an actual legitimate thing, but like yeah. a, a real conspiracy theory. From my uh, quick Google search, <laughs> it doesn't look like it, but there was a relationship between the two men. So in early 1961, the Aswan High Dam was going to flood the Great Stone Pharaohs, an apple symbol, which was a problem at the time. They needed money to help patch that up. So JFK offered to give them 10 million US dollars to preserve Egypt's ancient history. And it was the first time that an American president actually acknowledged and supported the nationalistic goals of the new state in the wave of Arab nationalism. So because he had actually lended a hand, it helped establish a rapport and a relationship between the two. Because I think that JFK was a little bit afraid of the coming influence of communism in the Middle East, and he felt that Egypt might be a better stronghold to hold true right there. Hmm. So, yeah, um, as far as I can tell, though, there was there's no conspiracy theory about uh, yeah. the Egyptian president murdering him. <laughs> yeah, I guess this show, you know, wanted to come out of left field and just pull like a, you know, something that no one ever, no conspiracy theorist has ever thought about, I suppose. But yeah, I thought that was a very cool scene. That's the scene where like, Victor is like, he's very sneaky about it. Like he doesn't outright ask for Ed to buy him a drink, yet Ed still orders him another round. And he doesn't outright ask for a free meal, but Shelly gives him like a porterhouse steak with uh, potatoes au gratin on the house, you know? Mm-hmm. Pretty sneaky guy, but I love how they're all gathered around. I think Marilyn's there too. And they're all like talking about the JFK assassination. Uh, and I love that Ed brings up the Oliver Stone film. Uh, JFK, which is pretty cool. Back to Maurice, though. The next time we see him is he sort of stops Victor sort of in the middle of the street. I think I think Maurice is driving, hops out of his car, pulls Victor aside, and gives him like a dressing down. Uh, Maurice is not uh, very happy with what he finds in his dossier. And, you know, I guess I think at first Maurice says, like, this is false. Like, wh- why would you report this information? I think later we do figure out from Maurice that Maybe it's more true than he would like to believe, but the idea is Maurice perhaps, I think at some, some sometime and somewhere in Florida, uh, slept with a Russian spy and uh, leaked some information about um, some sort of like thruster or missile. And, you know, this, this is a, a betrayal to your country in, in the sense that you're leaking maybe military intelligence to a foreign spy. But Victor says, you know, it doesn't really matter. We already knew about the 
capabilities of that thruster. Uh, however, this is definitely sitting deep with Maurice, like it's hitting him kind of hard to to remember this account. Yeah, he is more concerned with the principle of things rather than the fact that the information didn't actually lend itself to the space race. Yeah, because um, he, he's depicted as like sort of um, braggadocious or just like an easy, someone who's like, who easily spills the beans maybe. Yeah, uh, though I'm a little bit confused on Maurice's um, concerns because as long as he has the dossier, it, it, that information isn't going to go anywhere, right? Yeah, I would assume so. But I guess the idea that the information was written down, it could be copied maybe. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, like I would assume that's the only, that's the file on Maurice Minifield. Like if you take that and burn it, no one else will have it. If you get rid of that, it's it's over with. But maybe, maybe he's afraid that there's a copy or maybe he's just afraid that, you know, like that event only existed in his mind you know, for the mm. longest time. And I think what had happened is he actually like blanked it out or he tried to erase it. Like he, cause he speaks with Chris later. We'll talk about that, but it's like something that he wanted to forget maybe. Uh, but this uh, dossier brings it back in clear daylight and he's kind of struck by that. So maybe it's just the fact that like someone else, like it's remembered in this piece of paper, I guess he could destroy it. Mm, okay. Yeah. I see what you're coming from. So if we skip forward a little bit, we can see that scene play out where Maurice is in this office alone. It's like really late, 2 a.m., and Chris comes out to go tell him that he's clocking out. That's where Chris actually talks to him a little bit. He lends an ear to Maurice's trouble, and Maurice kind of reveals, you know, like, what would you do, essentially? Like, how, how would you react to this situation? And Chris kind of says, like, you know, you're, you're a hero. You know, what you're experiencing here is just guilt. But Chris also says that, like, even though he is this hero— there's also like a, a little bit of a imposter syndrome where he feels that he didn't deserve all of it right there. Yeah, I think the direct quote is, Chris says, you know, in your gut, you feel you don't deserve it. The success, the fame, the wealth. I think imposter syndrome really like hits the mark there, Charles. And this scene is like, it feels a little unfinished uh, because it is, because it's continued in the next time we see Maurice, he's like standing maybe on some part of his land, like his backyard or something, uh, standing over a little bonfire that he's built and he's tossing papers into the fire. Turns out it's his memoir that he's just decided he's given up on his memoir, started to burn it. Chris uh, pulls up to finish this conversation, I guess. Uh, I guess I should say this, I think in this scene, Chris arrives on his motorcycle, right? I, I forget. I mean, obviously earlier on in this season, he loses his Harley, uh, I don't know if this is the first time that we see Chris back on a motorcycle, but he's got a new one. Yeah, you're right. Is this the first time? Yeah. It looks like it's the first time. Yeah. Um, that definitely is a new motorcycle right there. It looks pretty nice from what I'm looking at right here. Yeah. Shiny new motorcycle. Again, maybe this is this has been introduced earlier, but uh, it just reminded me of, uh, I believe it was like the third episode where he, the third episode of this season where he loses the motorcycle. Uh, but, uh, do not fret. He's got a brand new one. And yeah, so Maurice kind of takes to heart what Chris told him back at K-Bear at like 2 AM or whatever. It's like, you're right. I, I don't feel like, I feel like an imposter in a way. And Chris says, you know, let's go to the break. Let's have a drink. But Maurice, it turns out has already been drinking mezcal from the bottle. And I think it's funny the next time we find Maurice, is I believe the following morning, again, Chris pulls up on the Harley 
Maurice is just kind of like sitting down over the smoldering remains of the fire pit. It almost feels like, you know, we don't see the bottle around, but I imagine it's empty because I feel like Maurice is like super hungover in this moment. He looks, got that like five o'clock shadow, disheveled hair. His cap, I think he has his like NASA cap in his hands. I remember Mm -hmm. that, like he's got his hat off. But what happens in this scene? Yeah, that's the one where Chris pulls up again and he's got some new information that Victor had given him about General MacArthur. And he's explaining to him that General MacArthur had also, like, quote-unquote, betrayed his country, but was still revered as an American hero for saving America. So he's trying to use that as a parable to Maurice to explain to him that, you know, it's okay. Like, all great people have some skeletons in their closet. You know, you can still move on ahead with your life. Like, you don't have to be anchored down on this moment where you felt like, because you had made a mistake, it didn't mean that you still couldn't be larger than life. Right, yeah. This is kind of like um, a recurring element of a lot of um, what Maurice goes through in a lot of these episodes, sort of like uh, your heroes and kind of breaking them down, taking them down from their pedestal, looking at them as humans. What Chris is trying to say in this scene is, you know, MacArthur maybe got a little too drunk while he was playing cards, fell asleep, and the Russians like took photographs of the contents of his briefcase and got all this uh, information from him while he was uh, drunk asleep. Uh, but like you said, it's just the idea of, you know, everybody screws up. MacArthur is a human. You know, he is a hero, but everybody screws up, and even heroes have mistakes. You know, they make mistakes. So I guess this is Chris's idea of sort of uh, alleviating this problem that Maurice is going through. And I think it's very interesting the next time we see Maurice and Chris together, they're at the brick talking this over. Victor comes, I guess, to say goodbye. And Maurice kind of gives him, uh, again, a dressing down. He's like, you better not sell that MacArthur information to anybody else, blah, blah, blah. Maurice storms out. And Victor looks at Chris and says, "What what is this MacArthur business? Chris says, oh, I don't know what he's talking about. So I think we're to imply that Chris just made up this uh, this compromising material. Like he didn't really buy anything <laughs> off of Victor. He just uh, he just made it up to to fit the story for Maurice. I always thought that it was kind of odd whenever we have like like standard historical leaders and heroes like MLK or Gandhi, and people now would dig up every single facet of their life. And they would say like, well, did you know that this person did this? And I I, I know, and that makes them (laughs) really bad whenever they do so. Some of it is really egregious and terrible. I don't think that means that like, oh, well, let's just be cynical and assume that there's no quote unquote good human beings. Um, I feel like people take it too far in the other direction. Like I get it that we shouldn't hero worship. I'm on board with that. But I also don't agree with the thought that like, you shouldn't like anybody. Like everyone's a terrible, <laughs> rotten, garbage human being. Like I don't, I don't think that's true either. Yeah. Well, I mean, regardless of where you sit in that argument, I think what the episode is is trying to say, at least with Chris, is that yeah, like people will make mistakes. That should not tarnish their entire reputation. And for Maurice here, maybe it's true that he betrayed his country. Uh, in his words, or maybe in the eyes of like, uh, in the worst case scenario, like he could be viewed as a betrayer of his of his country. But um, what Chris is trying to say is, 
you know, you shouldn't um, write off all of your accomplishments. The fact that you are an American hero, you know, so like, <laughs> so there's oh, that man, outlook. I, off, off mic, but like, <laughs> I was trying to go in a direction, like, I, I get what I was trying to say, but I also don't want listeners to hear that and be like, oh, you must be on like, he must be on the side of the Confederate statues being right, right, right. still like staying up. I, I don't know how to make it to be like, no, 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 that's not, that's, a, that's not what I mean. I think it's okay. I think, I think it'll be all right. You know, I, I, cause I totally agree with you and I tried to like make it, uh, more neutral. You know, I just made it. A, a yeah, yeah. So I think it's cool. I think it'll be all right. So that's kind of the end of Maurice's plot line. We sort of get the idea that Chris made things right by introducing this idea that, Heroes can be human and they can make mistakes. But before we get to our next plot line, I did want to mention, I don't think we'll touch on this anywhere else, but Victor visits um, Ruth Ann's store and buys like some winter gloves, blah, 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 just a bunch of general goods. And uh, instead of paying with cash, he tries to, <laughs> he tries to give her a, like a penny loafer, like a shoe. He says, this is the shoe that Khrushchev beat on the table you know, the famous, uh, we will bury you, you know, uh, was it the United Nations. Um, so he tries to give her that historical artifact, but she does not buy it. She, she says she'd rather take cash. Yeah. I don't understand that one because he says that it's worth more than $64. So this will surely settle the bill with the grocery, but if it's worth more than $64, why don't you yourself sell it and right. get more than that? Yeah. I mean, I guess the only defense is like it would, whoever has it could be compromised or like they'd be like, how did you get this or whatever? It, they might. I don't know. It obviously. Well, it's also, yeah. Uh, not that I say it, like it could still be true that that is his shoe, but there's nobody <laughs> willing to pay that price. I right. always think about that whenever they get that he's a, uh, old artifact or art pieces and they're like it's worth like 20 million dollars it's like yeah it's fair market value might be that but like find me the person that's willing to actually buy that it's probably far and few between you'd have to really go searching for it yeah it's worth as much as someone will pay for it uh yeah exactly so and all the on the other end of the spectrum i i I met this guy who would always say like they say the Mona lisa is priceless but i mean like someone will pay money for that. So like, you know, everything has its price. (laughs) That's the other side of the spectrum. Uh, I would say, I think Victor's lying here, but uh, it's left ambiguous. So we don't know. But I think, I feel like his character is trying to play a trick on a lot of people. Whether or not we believe this, these, all these dossiers and intelligence are true. I think this shoe is, uh, I don't know. I I don't believe it. But anyway, we get to the hauling and Shelly, plot line, really the brick. So we're visited by another guest star on this episode, uh, the actor John Hawks. He's playing a character named Jason. Uh, He's a health inspector. It turns out the brick has not had a health inspection. The last time it had its health inspection was in 1952, I want to say. So, you know, at the time of the show, that was 40 years ago because this was in uh, 92. Yeah, that can't be safe. Yeah, there's like stuff on that form that didn't exist 40 years ago. <laughs> like to be honest, like it was that's uh, gosh. Yeah, uh, so this is the plot line where Holling gets really aggressive about the brick, and he takes offense that this uh, very young kid. He can't be much more older than like 24 or something like that. He's clean shaven. You can see that he kind of looks um a little bit opposite of the other guest star who is very disheveled. This guy is bright and bushy-eared. He 
is wanting to do the quote unquote right thing. He sold out his father. Oh for, yeah, you know, not running his establishment really well. Uh, there was, I think he said that like, what did he say? Let me find it. Well, I think that's it. While you're looking that up, the quote, I think that's a really great scene because this character, like you said, he's like a very young guy. He's pretty happy-go-lucky. He's like a very positive, charming, uh, genial guy uh, to have around. And so when he's actually looking at the kitchen, like he finally gets behind the, you know, into the kitchen at the brick, uh, he starts telling the story of his father and Holling's like, oh yeah, I may have known your father, blah, blah, blah. He says, "Yeah, it was a, uh, it was really a bummer. I had to shut him down." <laughs> and at that point, you really get to see how sinister and how much power this uh, this little health inspector guy has. Uh, he's not really all smiles and genial. He's he's uh, he's going to be an antagonist in some right. You know, he's gonna he has the power to shut down the brick. Yeah, but it's always for good measure, though. Like I feel like there is a reason oh, that yes. rules and regulations yes. exist. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I agreed with them on, like, everything that he was citing the brick on. Like, it wasn't like he was going around and trying to invent trumped-up charges against him yeah. to be like, oh, like, your paint's blue and it's supposed to be red or, like, something ridiculous like that. He had really reasonable things. Like, I think one of them was putting a, a sign to wash your hands for the employees. Yeah. And I actually looked into that. Good. So, according yeah. <laughs> to a healthy hand-washing survey conducted by Bradley Corporation, so take this what you will, you know, they <laughs> are the people putting the survey together, they say that more than half say the presence of other people causes them to adjust their actions in one of two ways. They'll either make sure they wash their hands or they'll wash longer or more thoroughly. And they also said that a written reminder posted in the restroom can influence behavior. Almost 40% of Americans admit they're more likely to wash their hands after seeing a sign that requires employees to wash before returning to work. So it does look like it works. The stuff that he's trying to encourage hauling to do, you know, what helps sanitize the place, reduce illnesses around. You know, he's got a good head on his shoulder right there. Yeah, I think hauling's defense, he says like, well, you know, like I don't have a sign because I think they already know that. I don't need to remind them. But the argument that the study poses is that, of course, we know to wash our hands. But with that written uh, reminder on the wall, maybe it encourages us to wash them a little longer or it somehow affects us to, you know, really, really do a good job. I don't know. It's a weird um, subconscious thing, maybe. But uh, no, I agree too, Charles. You're saying like, this health inspector character, he's not uh, malicious. Like he's not trying to trip up uh, hauling. Uh, he actually tries to help hauling a lot. He's trying to be pretty lenient too. a lot of times, like uh, specifically about the sign. He says, you know, like, shouldn't you have a sign? And hauling rebuts with the idea. It's like, no, they, they already know to wash their hands. I don't need to remind them. And he says, well, you really should have a sign. Like he's trying to basically hint, you know, he's going to, he's, he's not telling hauling outright, you know, like I'm going to dock you for this, but he's like, get the sign. Like, don't worry. Like I won't mark you down. Like he's trying to say it without saying it. And another example of him sort of like helping hauling is, uh, I like, I really liked in the scene where he's like, uh, doing the final inspection. He's like noting all of the accomplishments that hauling made. He points out that the cups 
It's like, you know, the cups are stored properly, like upside down so they can drain. And one of the cups is actually right side up and he flips it upside down for him. You know, like he does it for Holland. Oh, I didn't catch that. I thought that was pretty cool. It's like, of course you're not going to dock him for one cup, like in the wrong position because all the other cups are upside down. So you're right. He is, uh, he's a helpful little dude, even though Holling is a little perturbed. Maybe he feels uh, attacked in a way for some reason. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, the brick is a source of pride for him. And I guess it, it's also more than that. It's just like, it's a way of life. So the way he runs the place is the way that he also views how he should be living his own life. So he feels that like, I don't have to babysit someone. They should be able to tell with their own common sense. Yeah. So I want to live like that. That's why I came to Alaska so that, you know, I can do what I want. And someone else, some other entity is coming in and making me do changes <laughs> I don't want to do. So the next time that we see them, we see that Holly knows that it's going a little south, but he also picks up on the fact that Jason is a little bit infatuated with Shelly since he makes a lot of comments about her attractiveness. So he decides to kind of trick Shelly into going to <laughs> see a movie with him in order Dude, to, I, I guess. Yeah, this is yeah. so messed up, but I love like this. Okay, up front, this is really messed up. Like He's essentially pimping out Shelly to like, to make this better for his situation, I guess for their situation. But I do say I love that Shelly like instantly calls him out for it. Like in the end, she's like, don't think I wasn't aware of what you were doing. Like I knew you wanted me to go to the movies with Jason so that he would give us a better score because that's what happens in this scene that we're talking about is uh, Hauling approaches Shelly. Well, actually, Shelly says she wants to go see this new movie. Uh, what was the movie? It, it's got Bruce Willis in it. Yeah. <laughs> What is it called? Um, the Last Boy Scout, which actually I've never seen, but I, I noticed it was written by Shane Black. I think it was bought, like the screenplay was bought for a very high price. Uh, that's a you know famous uh, you know Lethal Weapon uh, screenwriter. He's written and directed a lot of great movies, still working today. But um, Shelley wants to see this movie, and Holling can't make it, but he suggests you know maybe you take Jason to the movies because, as you said, Charles, he noticed that Jason. Uh, maybe he's a little infatuated or uh, stricken by Shelley's appearance. Oh, no, there's a shot that shows the last boys. Wait, there's a shot in the episode where we can see like the poster or something? The matinee. You can see oh, the last Boy Scout see... matinee today. Yeah, it's like on the marquee. You're right. But, oh, is it called the marquee? Uh, the marquee? Yeah, it's called the marquee. Yeah, a matinee is the afternoon show. The marquee is the sign. Yeah, yeah I right. think matinee is like the early, the early show. Yeah, the early show, yeah. Yeah, that's also where it shows that he lives in his van for right now, which kind of makes sense if you're just traveling, you want to save some money because you keep going from town to town. So, yeah, he also kind of tries to insinuate to Shelly that he would settle down, and I think that's where she picks up on, like, it was a date, not just yeah. like an innocent going. Yeah, he like shows her the van, and he's like, you know... I would invite you in, but people might suspect things. Uh, so that kind of places their relationship maybe in a less platonic scenario there. He's interested in Shelly. And and again, I think it's really fun that, you know, later on when Shelly has to like tell Holling, it's like, you got to play by the rules. Like if you want, if you want the brick not to close down, it's not a big deal. This guy just, uh, what does she say? Like, he just doesn't want hair in the soup. Like, it's not a big deal. You can just follow these rules. Uh, she relates it to a beauty pageant. It's like, you've never been judged unless you've been in a beauty pageant. And uh, again, I love that she 
he's totally aware of what Holling was trying to set up there to try to like game that like to try to trick the judge. Yeah. I love that. I, Shelly's coming in real clutch right here. I really appreciated <laughs> yeah. that part of her character. So she's saying that Holling believes he's being quote unquote judged Yeah, because you know, he's being issued this stuff. Whereas he's mostly just being observed and issuing standards to follow that everyone else has to follow too. Yeah. Like this health inspector is going around town to town and issuing the same stuff that everyone is doing just to ensure that we all have a clean establishment to eat at. And Shelly is saying that beauty contestants, they aren't judged on objective qualities. They're judged on subjective qualities based on like the smallest of little things or whether or not these uh, old judges you know, think that the, some sort of um, beauty must be obtained. And they realize that because that's the price to pay to play in these types of games. So they're okay with that. And for Holling to even insinuate that he is on the same level of that is crap. And she calls him out <laughs> on that. And I really like that about Shelly. Yeah. It's a cool scene where like Holling is trying to stand up to Jason. And it's almost as if like Jason is surrounded by, I mean, he's like up front, close to Holling, who's like sort of like almost yelling at him and the patrons of the brick are all over. Everyone's like staring at Jason and he's like, look, I'm looking out for you guys. Like I'm trying to make this a safe establishment. And yeah, like the dressing down that uh, Shelly gives Holling too is very nice. Just pointing out that it's like, this is, these are the rules of the game. You know, it's not so much like no one's attacking your character Holling. We're just trying to make the brick a safe establishment for everybody. And I love that. I love that when they're in the kitchen, this is earlier in the episode, they don't find any like mouse droppings or anything, but they found, uh, Jason finds marmot fur. <laughs> like that is the, that's the equivalent of mouse droppings up in Alaska, marmot fur. And that's about it for hauling. He does comply after this, uh, talk with Shelly. And again, we see the scene where Jason returns and gives him like great marks and, you know, flips the, there's that one cup that's right side up. He flips it upside down and yeah, everything works out for the brick in the end. So let's toss it to really, it's sort of like two plot lines, but maybe they're pretty close together. Let's toss it over to Maggie and Joel. Yeah. They kind of converge on their paths right there. So we saw earlier in the episode that Maggie is trying to contend with death and how she should be living her life, which she comes out thinking that, well, I have to be a better human being. I'm going to live each day telling the truth, you know, quote unquote, doing the right thing right here. And she's kind of going like, all right, so if I have to parallel this, yeah. <laughs> with the health inspector, he's doing the right thing, but he's also not abusing his power. Mm. Like he knows that he has the entity behind him. He has, he has the whole power of the health department behind him. So if he really wanted to, he could just tell Holling what to do and he could be smug about it and know that he's being self-righteous and that, you know, he could get away with it. But he doesn't. He plays it really cool. He's very calm. And he knows that, like, he shouldn't go further than what he can go. Whereas with Maggie, she wants to do, like, quote-unquote, the right thing, but she's not going about it the right way. She's taking it too far. So, for instance, she goes and tells Chris about that record that he got from oh, Thule yeah. that he loved and cherished, and Maggie admits to him that she actually stole it, and she put it in her house, and then her house burned down. <laughs> she didn't have to reveal that, though. It already burned down. Yeah. That stuff is gone. 
Chris could have went his whole life just thinking that he misplaced it. But instead, Maggie dug up something uncomfortable from the past. And it was only to make her feel better. It yeah. wasn't to make Chris feel better. And there's a huge distinction between the two. So uh, I, I don't think that Maggie is going about this right. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, the end of that scene is Maggie is like, wow, I feel so much better. And Chris is like, look, get out of here. I don't even want to talk to you for a while. And he closes the door on her and she even opens it again. And she's like, I'm sorry, but I just feel a lot better doing this. And he's like, get out of here. You know, like, so again, yeah, like what you're saying, Charles is, you know, this is, it's good for her, but it's not really helping, at least in this scenario with Chris. Uh, that record was the John Coltrane, My Favorite Things, uh, that, as you said, Thule had uh, dedicated to Chris. But yeah, so Maggie has decided after learning about this guy, Howard, uh, inexplicably dying. It could have been her. Everyone's going to die. She's decided, like you said, to do the right thing, to be a good person and to not let, uh, what does she say? She says she doesn't want to let any anger into her life. She says anger is a negative, destructive feeling. Uh, I think she repeats that like twice in a row. Uh, So she's really kind of figured out this philosophy in her head she's trying to live by. And and the first act that she does, even before going to see Chris, she goes to Joel's uh, cabin like at 11 o'clock at night while he's brushing his teeth. Uh, and she just decides that she's going to finally fix his sink or fix the like leaky faucet that he's been complaining to her about for the past three months. Uh, so as this episode develops, um, she is almost straining to to try to be positive, uh, which is good, you know, like assume a virtue if you have it not. But (laughs) there is a scene where she like, I can't remember, she does something generous and then immediately feels some stomach pain. Oh, oh, I know what it is. She, uh, uh, Shelly brings her some chicken fried steak at the brick and she says, oh, you know what? I I actually ordered grilled steak. Shelly says, oh, well, it's no problem. I'll bring it back. Maggie says, no, 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 it's not a problem. I'll just eat the grilled steak. I'm sure it's delicious. But as soon as she... Decides to do that courtesy to Shelly, I guess. Uh, Maggie begins to feel some stomach pain. Yeah, she's developing a stomach ulcer right there. Though before I talk about that, I that just brought back a memory of mine where I I think there is an old uh, there's an old business job interview strategy where Ooh. sometimes an employer might take you out to dinner before they hire you, and what they purposely will do is that they'll tell the waiter to bring you your wrong order. Oh. And it's like incredibly wrong. Like not even close in the ballpark. And they judge how you will take it. And the thing about this trick is that if you just let it slide, apparently, according to the employers, that means that you're not assertive enough. But they also want to make sure that you're not too much of a jerk. Yeah. To be belittling the waitress or something like that. So they kind of want to watch your behavior. So I think that the right answer is that you make them replace your order back to the original one, but you do it kindly and you don't make a fuss about it. That's a great, <laughs> so sinister, but it's a great tactic because, yeah, the ideal solution would be you get the right order, but you're not too assertive. But I mean, that even that I think would be very hard to do because I think, uh, I think, I think it's going to like, I think you can still succeed without that outcome. But the key to success, I guess, in this job interview scenario would be, like you said, not to be too assertive. So like that is the tipping scale. Like you could get your order that you originally wanted, 
but that might be a failure if you're too assertive. God, that's such a right. such a tricky. But you you can't you can't just let it slide though. Yeah, which I, I don't fight for in it, my but mind. You can't be too assertive. Gosh. In my mind, I don't think that's a wrong thing though. I think there's only one wrong answer, and the wrong answer is to be too assertive yes. and to be mean to the waitress and so. you know all that. I think if you let it slide. I think it's reading too much into it. I, I think it means that the person could have been like, hey, it's no big deal. It's just food. It's whatever. Like, I'm most, mostly here for the job interview. I could yeah. be eating a shoe for all I that's care. That's it. I like, think that's what I was trying to say. Yeah. I think the the failure is being too assertive. I think if you if you don't get what you originally ordered, that's fine. But if somehow you can thread that needle by not being too assertive and still getting your original order, boom, you're hired. <laughs> So you were saying that Maggie gets this uh, stomach ulcer. Uh, the next scene that we see her in is, you know, she's visiting uh, Fleischman. And I love that she's like, you know, uh, thank you so much for like seeing me on such a short notice. You're such a great doctor. Uh, she's, she's trying to do the right thing, you know. Uh, and he diagnoses her with a peptic ulcer. And uh, she says, no, that I mean, like, she's a little shocked by that. She's like, I've never had uh, any problems with my stomach or anything like that. I've always eaten jalapenos, like spicy food. Like I've always eaten whatever I wanted and that's never been an issue. Joel suggests, I think he begins to suggest uh, the idea that this, uh, her quest to be a better person is what's causing this ulcer. And they, um, you know, she rejects that, but they get into that a little bit further I think in the next scene. What's the next scene with them? Yeah, well, right before we go into the next scene, I just yeah. want to say that it, it's again showing that theme of Maggie saying like, oh, you're such a great doctor. You're so knowledgeable. I'm really <laughs> glad to hear. But she's still rejecting the advice yeah. that he's giving. And he's a bona fide doctor. Like, I think it takes some gall for her to be like, nah, I can't. there's no way that I could have a problem that's never existed before. It's got to be this other thing. It's like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Like, I think, I even think that at the end of the scene, she's like, I respect you, but you know, I'm fine. <laughs> how so does she, that not happen though like like <laughs> i never understood how people say that yeah whenever they're like make, i can't have stomach problems problem. i've never had them before it's like yeah everything happens at least once <laughs> like why is that so surprising to you that you have a stomach <laughs> problem like once in your life like what um so so the next time uh oh that's what it is the next time joel sees maggie is she's leaving ruthann's store and she just took a huge gulp of Maalox, which I'd actually never heard of, but I guess is sort of like uh, something for you take for an ulcer uh, to deal with the pain, maybe. She's got like that that got milk mustache, you know, like the milk mustache, but it's Maalox, I suppose. She hides the bottle behind her back when Joel says, you know, what, did you miss a spot while you're shaving? What's going on? And yeah, it's at this point where, well, actually here, Charles, I have a, a soundbite that we can play from this scene to kind of show Joel's perspective here. I mean, call it what you like, okay? We can say human nature, the devil, whatever. People are are simply incapable of a prolonged, sustained goodness. So this this mission of yours, it's it's unachievable. And to tell you the truth, it's medically ill-advised. Medically ill-advised? Well, in your case, yes. I mean, the, the cornerstone of your psyche is this unfocused, searing rage. I don't think I know of a a more negative, reproachful individual. You're going completely against your grain. You are seriously jeopardizing your health. 
Okay, so I know what Joel's trying to say. He's trying to say, like, you can't be perfect 100% of the time. You're bound to make a mistake, which reflects onto Maurice's plotline. But I heavily disagree on his premise that because of who you are, you cannot change. So he's saying that Maggie is inherently a very negative person and she's not willing to go the extra mile for other individuals. So therefore, she should remain that way because supposedly her body is reacting to this sudden change and it's actually uh, <laughs> making her more unhealthy. And I, I think that's ridiculous. I, I think that if you want to be a good person, then you can just be a good person. You can just start right now yeah, and just you know change yourself a little bit toward there. I'm not saying it's going to be an overnight change. It's going to be a slow process on anything that you do. But I think that you can have like a good, healthy outlook on things if you just decide to want to have a good, healthy outlook on things. So if you want to be an individual that wants to care for others, I think just the first step is acknowledging that you want to be that person. And then just go forward from there. And it's small, minuscule steps until slowly but surely you achieve that. Yeah. Again, assume a virtue if you have it not. And uh, yeah, I was kind of surprised by the overall statement here that that Joel is giving. I mean, don't get me wrong; I really like I really like this monologue and what he's uh, the 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 way it's written. I love the the words in this sort of speech. But I think overall, yeah, the message kind of struck me as a little odd because I agree with you, Charles. I think if you want to be a good person, like you said, you should just be a good person. Try to be a good person. Maybe. What the episode is trying to frame here, if I had to give it uh, any credit, is that Maggie maybe is <laughs> Maggie is maybe trying overly hard because what's happening in the episode is that it's actually, for whatever reason, it's actually hurting Maggie's body to be good, which I don't think uh, normally happens. But maybe what they're trying to illustrate is that she's going so against the grain that it's having some sort of negative effect on her health. Hopefully, you know, doing the right thing would be positive for your body. But I guess in this instance, it's uh, degrading something within uh, Maggie's physiology. Yeah, I'm surprised that she even bought the premise to begin with. <laughs> like, so the premise is that you're such a terrible human being, you should remain a terrible human being. Yeah, you I love any source of good. I love you, like your body instantly reacts negatively. I love how Joel says, I don't think of a. <laughs> I don't think I know of a more negative, reproachful individual. I'm surprised that Maggie didn't just like uh, lash out, you know, with her own insults here. But I think uh, we get that a little. We get that I think in the next scene of with Maggie. But uh, I think maybe she's still trying way too hard to be good. I guess that's what we're supposed to get. It's sort of a humorous take that she's trying to go. She's trying to go like so far on the other side of uh, her character to be too good that it has an adverse effect. But I agree with you, Charles. I think uh, I think she's making the right move. Like if she wants to, if she decides she wants to be better and do better, she can do that. And I think it would be healthy and it would make her feel better too. I don't I don't agree with how the episode frames it, though. I think it's funny for a sitcom. I think it uh, it makes sense in in the uh, framework of a sitcom. Yeah. So that brings us to the last scene with Maggie, where there's a man repairing his vehicle right outside her home. And it's, you know, very loud. He's has an engine running and everything. There's smoke coming out of the vehicle. <laughs> and Maggie tries to be polite about it initially, but suddenly she turns the corner and decides to actually just tell him what's on her mind, like her actual genuine mind. She's telling him that, you know, he has no respect for anybody. He's polluting <laughs> the air. He's creating all this noise. 
And she kind of turns around and she smiles at herself. Yeah, she finally gets that sort of release after, you know, I think I think the first couple moments in this scene, the first few beats, she's trying to uh, take this man's like, he's ignoring her. She's trying to like take it calmly. And then finally, she, when she gets close up to him, she sort of lets it all out, uh, tells him what's on her mind. And then as she's walking away, we can see her smile and sort of rejoice. So yeah. There you go. That's sort of the the bow on the end of the package there for Maggie. But uh, we sort of touched a little bit on Joel. And uh, what's important here is that Joel, uh, you know, he sees Maggie for this peptic ulcer, but he also sees Victor earlier on in this episode, uh, who actually, what, actually forgot, what's going on with Victor medically? Yeah, he's got like, uh, yeah, it's just high blood pressure that he has. And Joel kind of prescribes him like Vazitec or something. Like he gives him like, Small medication. Yeah, he, well, so what happens is uh, uh, Victor asks for like some samples because he doesn't want to like pay for anything or he, you know, he doesn't want to get the, the prescriptions like very expensive. Actually, Victor, Victor mentions the drug and Joel says, yeah, that's pretty expensive, but uh, you know, that could, that could help you out perhaps. And Victor says, well, do, don't you have any uh, samples? And Joel, you know, has to pull out his box of samples and rifles through them. You know, I never actually thought, can you just do that at the doctor? Can you get free medication? If you're like, <laughs> I don't know. Can you do the Costco strategy? Or you just go into like, I would like one uh, uh, anti-inflammatory steroid yeah. shot. <laughs> yeah. So it seems to work here because Victor, I love this though, because Victor like starts uh, looking through this box that Joel brings out, calling off all these different drugs. Uh and he's like, as if he's like going to take all these samples. I love that Joel just kind of stares him down. He's like, what do you think you're doing? Like, I'm the doctor here. You don't get to just take <laughs> the drugs. Like, I'll give you the sample if I decide you need it or if I should give you. But anyway, he gets the sample. It's all good. And of course, he doesn't. Uh, well, he regarding the doctor bill, he offers a different type of payment. He brings out a dossier on one Yevgeny Fleischman. Obviously, you know, probably a long shot that they're related, but Victor says, you know, it's a very uncommon name. So maybe you read over this dossier. If you like it, uh, that will be the payment. If not, we'll settle the payment somehow. Yeah, he gives him this dossier right here and Joel's kind of skeptical of it at first. But then later on in the episode, we see him reading from the dossier and he talks to Victor about it, about how he used to sit around in his aunt's place and talk about the Jews that couldn't get out of Russia. And apparently Evgeny couldn't get out of Russia because, in Joel's words, he just wanted to study Hebrew, but he was detained for that. Yeah, um, Victor brings up a word that I hadn't heard before, uh, refusenik, which I guess was like a um, a term for Jews who, I guess, did not properly assimilate, you know, someone who would, uh, in this case, Evgeny's case, uh, would practice Judaism, light the menorah, or read the Torah, or something like that. Uh, someone who is not, oh, I, I'm looking at the exact definition. Someone who has refused permission to emigrate. A Jewish, you know, particularly a Jewish person forbidden to immigrate to Israel. Also a person who refuses to follow orders or obey the law, especially as a protest. So, you know, Yevgeny was maybe viewed as a, from, from the Russian state, the eyes of the Russian state as a, a protester. But he I don't was like just how that word, yeah, he was just, I don't like how oh, that go word just got associated with being, uh, disobeying the law. Like, yeah. that's, again, buying the premise that you trying to practice Judaism is against the law. 
Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't like this. What up. they're trying to get right here. <laughs> a Jewish dissident group is what he says. Uh, Yevgeny belonged to, but Joel accepts the dossier. He keeps reading it. I think there's a really interesting scene where Ed visits Joel. What is it? Oh, he wants to borrow Joel's VCR so that he can tape Das Boot. He said something like the tracking in uh, Ed's the tracking in Ed's VCR is messed up, so he wants to borrow uh, Joel's. And Joel kind of bends Ed's ear for a second. He's kind of talking about this dossier that he's reading through. Let me play a little soundbite for this. A Jew, Ed. I mean, that's what I am. This could just as easily have been my life. Yours? Yeah. I mean, if my grandfather hadn't bribed some mushik 50 rubles to smuggle him across the Russian frontier in the back of a hay wagon, I could have been Yevgeny Fleischman. I would have been Yevgeny Fleischman. Oh. Yeah, this whole idea in this episode really reminded me of the Passover Seder. And even Joel invokes it uh, in this episode. He says, like, every year at Passover, my relatives would say, like, we would take a moment to remember our ancestors and think about, you know, the Russian Jews who were persecuted, you know, who couldn't get out um, of Russia. And oh, he also mentions that they ate latkes for Passover, which maybe is a tradition, but typically, uh, you know, you eat latkes for Hanukkah, though I guess you could eat them year round, but whatever. But anyway, this whole idea reminded me of a passage that is, at least for me, is often recited in the Passover Seder. It's from Deuteronomy. I found the quote. It's, uh, remember you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord, your God brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. But this idea, basically the very first beginning of this idea, remember that you were slaves. The whole thing, uh, I remember very vividly from Passover, the Seder is, is this idea that you're eating these bitter herbs that's supposed to represent the tears, uh, and the sweat from slavery and uh, the, the different food on the Passover Seder plate represents all of these, um, a, a lot of it represents, you know, this uh, struggle of slavery, the harshness, uh, bitterness of life that you get from the horseradish, and just this passage of always connecting you uh, in this ceremony, you as a Jew with the slavery in your past and the persecution that has been, you know, throughout the Jewish people. Uh, I thought that was very interesting. It's a it's a big deal in tradition and ceremony in uh, Passover, but in a lot of Jewish holidays, I think they're try- that's what they're trying to hit on. I think they do a pretty good job uh, of yeah, relating no, Joel I, back. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree with you. I think they do a great job of doing that. Though I will have to say this, and I say this with as much <laughs> neutral tone and statement as I can do because I do not want to give a definitive answer <laughs> on this is that uh, I like how the episode decides to swing it in another direction and they start talking about the two-state solution for Israel. <laughs> <laughs> they start talking about uh, that the whole entity itself and, I'm, and I was like, I can't believe y'all actually went in that direction, not because it was so ridiculous, but because it's such a controversial subject. Yeah, this is a pretty Zionist, uh, like it's a pretty, he says like, think about, I didn't play this in the bite, but he says, think about that, Ed, what it must mean to have your own home, like for a Jew to return to Israel. Yeah, it, it's, uh, I don't, what are they, I don't, they don't get too I, political in this episode, do they? But they, I mean, they don't talk much about the the two-state solution. Do but that, they? I mean, they, they don't talk about the two-state solution, but they do talk about like, you know, that is Israel is rightfully right. for Jewish they, no, people. They're definitely on the, it's the Israel side, not the, they don't really represent, yeah. there's no representation of And uh, I wonder how many side. people 
how many people at the time like saw that on their television and saw Joel say those words? They're like, "What?" And like turn off the television. Probably very little, right? I mean, I, I would imagine like uh, most of Americans didn't recognize Palace. I don't know. Maybe I'm wrong. I mean, it's a touchy subject, and for them to say it at such uh, confidence is yeah. the, is the reason I was. Or surprised. it's it's almost it just feels like very patriotic. But I guess it wouldn't be the word would be very Zionist. I guess yeah, I don't know. I don't want to get into it. <laughs> anytime, anytime you say that word, like it's yeah, almost it's always like, like, like it sounds like a pejorative. It sounds yeah. like a pejorative because it's only spoken by people that are. It's very charged. This is a very charged topic. Um, <laughs> Either way, yeah, Joel is very proud to be Jewish, very proud of his heritage, and very, very happy to uh, think about Israel. Let's continue, because, I mean, we're still going to be talking about Israel in a second. But um, as this story unfolds, we see that Joel accepts this dossier on Yevgeny Fleischman as payment. Like, even though I think he admits multiple times that he's not related, he realizes he's not related to this person. But uh, he, as we heard in the bite, he says, I could have been Yevgeny like I am. You know, the idea of the Passover, you know, that quote that I brought up, it's like, you were a slave, you know, this is you. So, um, yeah. So the, the, the episode ends with Joel getting on the phone. It's a pretty cool shot. It's like late at night in Joel's office. And we're looking in on Joel through like the office door. There's like the dramatic nighttime lighting. Uh, we're outside the office looking through the doorway. Somehow Joel has found the number for Yevgeny Fleischman in Israel. I'm impressed by that. Yeah. I don't, maybe Is that in the dossier? Like what's going on? Uh, someone like a, a child picks up but hands the phone to uh, Yevgeny who doesn't speak English and Joel doesn't speak Hebrew. So they have this – it's weird because like they're talking to each other and the music sort of swells. The The sound fades away. What this scene appears to show is like Joel is like talking at long length with Yevgeny, but they can't understand each other. So I, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so he kind of has like a heartwarming uh, moment where he's talking with Yevgeny, you know, trying to see how things are in Israel with them over there. And yeah, it's like it just fades to black. So we're led to assume that Joel is like connecting with his roots. Yeah. That's the idea. And it's cool. Like Joel has behind Joel, he's got the picture. I, I didn't really get to see what the content of the picture was, but it says New York at the top. So it's like, he's, he's rooted to his life in New York, but also even further through this, uh, telephone and almost through like traveling back in time, his, uh, his ancestral Jewish roots, like Russian Jewish roots. I, I assume he has some Russian heritage perhaps. I wonder what they're talking about. I guess they're just talking. I, you know, I think it's interesting in the scene. It's like, obviously, Joel knows that Yevgeny can't understand him, but he still, he just has to say these things. And I think it's a bit of a, maybe a therapy, but also an unspoken connection, but just kind of getting your thoughts out in the air. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Uh, something beautiful about communicating through the telephone, you know, something that's further than language. Yeah. Well, suffice it to say, uh, I guess we'll echo what we said at the beginning of the episode. Kind of a slow episode for us. Uh, I do want to point out no Mike Monroe in this episode. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I didn't notice that until you just brought that up. But yeah, show still works without him. Uh, so <laughs> maybe we don't need him around. No, nah, it's fine. Um, I, I will say it. this, as I said at the beginning of the episode, it was great to return to Sicily, but it also reminded me of some uh, 
some of the greatness that we see between Joel and Maggie, that whole chemistry. Uh, we get to see them sling some insults. I, again, I really love how Joel says, the cornerstone of your psyche is this unfocused, searing rage. I don't think I know of a more negative, reproachful individual. I just love the language there. <laughs> and uh, I love that they're they're insulting each other again. That's great. That's always great. All right, Charles. So this is the part of the episode where we bring on a guest, someone who has never seen the show before, uh, typically never seen the show before. And in this case, our guest, Lucas, this is his first time, uh, I think maybe first time even hearing about the show, but definitely the first episode that he's ever watched. And uh, let's see, Lucas is an actor. We go way back. He used to live in the same city, uh, but has moved on. But uh, thankfully, we still keep in touch through you know various group messages. So really glad to have him on the podcast today and hear his thoughts on this episode. All right. Season four, episode nine of Northern Exposure. Do the right thing. This was my first episode of the show. Never seen any of it before. So I wanted to be prepared. Got my wine and my chocolate and my notepad and went to the bathroom before I started the episode because I didn't want to have to interrupt it at all. First thing I kind of noticed was this weird meeting with the KGB guy and Maurice. It felt like it was strange. And with this rural setting and everything, it I was getting vibes like, is, is this kind of like Twin Peaks for people who like something a little lighter, a little more traditional than what Twin Peaks obviously is? And this negotiation with them is so easy. It goes from like $20,000, no less. 8000 Yeah, sure, okay. So that was fun. Uh, and then we see a little bit of the town. And I grew up in rural Maine in the 90s. And I know this is rural Alaska, but it feels like it could have been shot or taken place in my hometown. And then I meet... Uh, Dr. Fleischman for the first time, and Maggie, and Maggie's friend just died. First time he he says, who's Howard? I was like, that's the part he's going to focus on. And then he asks, he brings up not knowing Howard again. And I'm like, why is he harping so hard on not knowing Howard, who's dead? <laughs> My first vibes I'm getting from Dr. Fleischman is he's... It's pretty dense. Uh, and then the next time he's in uh, he's in Maggie's house and he's just asking her questions again that it feels like he doesn't need to be asking. And right as I'm thinking how dense he seems, Maggie brings up how she's not going to say how he's inept. So I'm like, yeah, Maggie and I, same page there. And then we see Victor in Dr. Fleischman's office and he's going through those samples and looking at the glycerin and stuff. I'm like, is he, is he going to take all that and make a bomb? But then he puts it all back and everything's fine. He offers Dr. Fleischman something other than money for the services. And he's trying to get money out of Maurice and he tries to give the town, the, the store clerk a shoe in lieu of payment. And I'm like, is is this guy broke? <laughs> the KGB guy just coming into town, blackmailing and selling off random random things? 
he's short on money for some reason. I was wondering if this was a bit of a standalone episode for a while, because there's two separate characters with different stories in the episode that seem like they're in just this episode, probably, uh, with the with Victor, the KGB guy, and then Jason, our health and safety monitor, which I'm always happy to see John Hawks, but I don't think I would be friends with his character, Jason, in this. Oh, but they go see Last Boy Scout. Uh, that's not important, but I loved that touch. It's a great choice. And Shelly is Jason's date to last Boy Scout. And up to this point, she just seems so lax and just just down with whatever, aloof maybe. And and then she just schools Mr. Vancour uh, with, her, with her runway story, kicking him into gear to get his business in line, which he just for some reason doesn't want to do like the whole through the whole episode. He's like, I don't want to be a good business owner. Uh, stay out of my business. I know exactly what you're here for, but I'm going to pretend like that doesn't matter. So in the end of the episode, I, w- I was feeling like Shelly's not only the strongest person in town. She also has like the greatest sense of self of anyone in town. Good head on her shoulders. <laughs> I I looked up the show on IMDb before watching this episode and I I anticipated talking about John Corbett a lot more, but he didn't really have a whole lot going on until he kind of had the one of the bigger moments in the episode uh where he I guess makes up a letter to lie to his friend Maurice to make him feel better about uh, giving away American secrets. So that was nice. But then we've also got Dr. Fleischman's learning of a potential may or may not be relative in Israel. And, uh, And there's this moment with him and the kid where the kid's like, you can't go anywhere, Dr. Fleischman. You're stuck here. And I I that was that was probably my biggest laugh of the episode other than uh when the indigenous woman says that he does look like the guy in the picture cuz he's white, but the he's white moment is definitely supposed to be funny and I was feeling like maybe the you can't go anywhere, you're stuck here moment. Is supposed to be a bit more touching, but because I don't know these characters, it was one of my bits of comedic relief. All right, so Maggie, I think I like her better when she's nice. Let the guy work on his truck in the middle of the day. Threatening to shoot his truck seems a little bit over the top. I enjoyed the episode. I don't think I would watch all of the show. For one thing, I I have a hard time watching shows these days that are in standard format. Uh, That's kind of the reason why I didn't even make it through the first season of Six Feet Under when I tried that, because that was in standard format. And just like, 
I need widescreen these days. Spoilt. Have I ever been in a situation where I was stuck or didn't want to be in a place and in the end I hopefully gained something or found myself changed for the better? That's, that's me every time I've smoked weed as an adult. I feel like I'm stuck and like don't want to be in whatever situation I'm in. And I kind of just have to wait it out until I'm no longer high. I've found myself changed for the better because I pretty much have learned to quit smoking weed ever. Although the last time, the most recent time I did smoke was the day of the very first Donald Trump Joe Biden debate. And I smoked halfway through that and it did not make things better. That was a bad time. All right, I've given you more than my fair share of time. Uh, thank you for having me. Okay, that was Lucas's take on this episode. And let's roll it back to sort of the beginning of his commentary. I liked how he described his sort of ritual of beginning to watch the episode. He had a little bit of chocolate and some wine and made sure he went to the bathroom before starting. He wanted to watch it in one fell swoop. And <laughs> Charles, do you have any rituals when you go approach this this show for the podcast? I am generally rushing because <laughs> I always watch the episode on the day that we're recording. Right. But yeah. it's not just like the episode length mm -hmm. that I, I have to account for because uh, we're constantly pausing during the show, writing notes, trying to look up all sorts of information. So what ends up being a 45-minute episode usually can take like two, sometimes even three hours for me. Yeah. So usually I'm just like straight rushing, just trying to get as many notes and trivia because I need that knowledge to retain it on my brain because uh, it's like test, I guess. Like once it's done, it's like it's out. <laughs> yeah. And I have the advantage of like I've seen this show a few times. Uh, some of these episodes I've seen more than others, but when I'm watching it uh, for the podcast, you know, it's it starts to come back to memory. But for you, it's maybe more important to watch it the day of. So you're not confused with anything else because it's your kind of first time watching it. And um, yeah, I'll echo you. It takes some time. I'm sure maybe Lucas experienced this too. Like when you pause a show, it definitely, 45 minutes is a long time. But if you account for pausing and writing notes and thinking about what you've just seen, um, I guess when you're watching a show, you're always thinking about what's happening. You're kind of like that the best shows or movies engage your thought in that way. But um, when, you, when you're able to pause, you can really reflect. And that takes its own time as well. But yeah, <laughs> go ahead. Lucas mentioned that he grew up in rural Maine in the 90s. And he said it looked just like what Sicily is. Uh, very rural Alaska right there. And I, I guess to us, me, me and you, Lee, we both grew up not in a large city. And it was uh, closer toward the rural end than the urban end. I, I guess, uh, you know, it was a little bit similar to what we grew up in. But I, I wouldn't say that you could film uh, Sicily, where we grew up. Yeah, definitely not. And just to be clear, um, the show, you know, we know Charles, the show was filmed in Washington. So it's not actually in Alaska. So it's, um, you know, that makes sense that it's, uh, you know, maybe not so snowy in some of these episodes and maybe more comparable to Maine, though I'm sure Maine gets its fair share of, uh, of snow. But yeah, I was I was also surprised because Charles, we grew up, like you said, in sort of a rural area. And um, that was something that I connected to when I watched the show for the first time. Just seeing like 
I guess the idea of people are like all over, but in this case, there are a lot of similarities, sort of like call it what you will. I don't know if it's offensive, like backwoods or redneck, you know, but that also can exist, uh, like the outdoorsman sort of idea can exist also in the North, obviously. <laughs> Lucas also has the impression that Joel is inept. Like, I, does he know that Joel is the main character? Yeah, I'm, well, you know, I didn't tell him that. And I'm surprised. Uh, a lot of times our guests will often attribute uh, the protagonal role to a different character, not to Joel. So I wonder what he thinks, um, who he thinks the main character was. I'll have to message him after this. But yeah, he, he um, I, I think what set him off in, in this thought was uh, Joel is not, you know, comforting Maggie when she says her friend died. He's just more like, you know, he's, he's, his mind is set to something else. The idea of like, who's Howard. So, you know, very quickly, Lucas can see maybe side more with Maggie and in the idea that maybe Joel is, like you said, inept. But he doesn't side with Maggie in the end. Like yeah. he says that like, <laughs> he doesn't like it when she confronts the guy. And I got to say, I'm actually on Maggie's side. And I, I don't care if I'm being irrational or whatever, but, uh, one of my biggest pet peeves, it might even evolve beyond pet to like, uh, to like a what what is what is beyond a pet like a human being like <laughs> whatever that stage is of a peeve i'm at that stage for loud vehicles yeah. uh, i don't like loud motorcycles loud trucks any of that stuff i hate it and gosh it's, it's just <laughs> if i if i run for like higher office like for for public that would be the only thing on my platform not, not anything else not addressing like income inequality or education uh, <laughs> or any of the myriad of issues that we are facing no 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 just band of loud vehicles make vehicles quieter yeah um that's my only plank no especially when like if it's like in your front yard i mean i will say i think lucas mentions that it's like she gets mad at this guy for working on his car in the middle of the day. I always interpreted the scene as sort of being in the morning because Maggie is like, she seems like she's just woken up. It's possible maybe she woke up from a nap or what is even maybe more likely is she pulled like an all-nighter like on one of her um, mail runs because uh, she's sort of like this uh, uh, mail delivery pilot, uh, what whatever you call it. So it could very well be just the middle of the day. Like it doesn't have to be the morning. In fact, it doesn't even really look like morning. I just thought, I always thought it was like morning because Maggie is waking up. <laughs> yeah, Lucas says he liked her more when she was nice. It's like, it's fine. Like let her be nice. She wants to be nice. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I'm with you, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> Lucas does also point out that he feels for this episode, Shelly is sort of the strongest character maybe the smartest or wisest. And Charles, we've talked about this before. One thing I really like about Shelley's character, I think people can really appreciate the humor that they draw out of this character, the childish sort of um, sort of naivety. But you can always see that in a lot of episodes, they kind of flip that. And it turns out maybe it's sort of like a Emperor's New Clothes thing where, you know, someone who is young can sort of see through all the bull crap and maybe is a little, in Shelly's case, like a lot more experienced than we give her credit for. Maybe it's in different ways than uh, the older generation is used to, but she's got some smarts and some wisdom. 
Yeah, I agree. I think that Shelly's always coming in with beauty pageant analogies, and you would try to attribute that to someone that just doesn't know a lot about the world. But in a lot of ways, uh, much like a lot of teenagers, they'll attribute something that doesn't necessarily have a deep value, but the way they use it creates uh, understanding that we are not used to and that it can actually go further than what the tool itself is purposed to be. So Shelly, like you said, is able to go beyond what these old townsfolks are used to using tools that you would not perceive to go that far. Uh, and that's her strength. And I really like that about her character. And I agree. I think that she really excelled in this episode. Uh, I think I specifically wrote like Shelly the best. Like <laughs> Shelly the <da> best. <laughs> yeah, no, but yeah, I think it's a thing where you may not expect experience from, like you said, something like a beauty pageant, but in the end, like I think experience comes from someone who has suffered loss or failure and just learning lessons. And you can learn life lessons in a lot of ways. But, um, you know, just because she learned it from a beauty pageant doesn't mean it's not applicable to a lot or all walks of life, you know? Right. So he also mentions that he was very hyped to see John Corbett. And uh, and Lucas, I know you said you're you're not one for like standard definition uh, TV, but John Corbett does play a pretty large role in the series. Unfortunately, not so much in this episode. Uh, he has some really cool stuff to do. Like he has pretty cool scenes, uh, sort of the climax of Maurice's plot line. But yeah, it's the, the story's not too much focused on Chris's character, uh, though he is sort of a plot engine. Uh, he does some cool stuff. Lucas mentions that he found two scenes that were similar in tone, but played differently uh, in that one he found that the you can't go anywhere, you're stuck here. He thought that that was a really... Like the funniest. He's like the funniest yeah. scene for him. He thinks it's the funniest scene. I was trying to remember exactly what he had said. Uh, and he also thought that the scene where Marilyn was saying that like, well, you're both white. Like, that's why you both <laughs> look similar. But he knew that was being played for laughs right there. And, and in a lot of ways, those scenes are th the same thematically because it's showing that Joel can't really escape like, yeah. Joel is stuck looking like what he was from his past, and he's also stuck here physically. Yeah, and I agree. I, I actually agree with Lucas. I think both scenes are really funny, and it's true. I actually went back and watched it. It can be played or it can be interpreted in a number of ways, like uh, the you're stuck here scene. Uh, it's got sort of that sad clarinet music, and Joel is definitely, you know— uh, kind of struck by that. But I mean, obviously Ed's performance and delivery is comical. And I think this taps into what I've liked about the series from season one is like seeing Joel as the victim is always kind of fun. Uh, so you can get some humor from that. Of course, we love Joel. Uh, and we also relate to his his plight, but uh, we, can, we can have a little bit of both. And I think that scene has has some great tonalities both ways. And finally, moving on to the final question we ask our guest, Lucas says that whenever he smokes weed, he always feels <laughs> stuck. I don't know if we can say the word weed, so... It, Are we going to have to bleep that? <laughs> yeah, the word that I am saying right now is uh, the, the devil's lettuce. <laughs> that one. And... Uh, I'll just bleep it out just for humor anyway, you know? Okay, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, at first I was kind of curious what he meant by that. I, I thought the like... Does he feel like in the location, whenever he is in the influence, he doesn't want to be there? Or does he not want to be doing the act at all? 
Like, he just doesn't want to be smoking. And it turns out, like, he just didn't want to be smoking. <laughs> yeah, I think it's known that there can be, like, one of the side effects of smoking marijuana could be, uh, like, paranoia, maybe, or some some mild feelings of paranoia. Uh, but I think it's funny. His lesson is, like, the lesson I learned was basically not to smoke weed anymore. So don't do drugs, kids. <laughs> um, and also he relates, like, the last time... Uh, that he part partook in was um, during the presidential debates, which obviously, you know, even if you're not watching the debates, just the whole political climate, you know, during that time was super stressful. So I, if if uh, Lucas's reaction to smoking is paranoia, obviously not a great combination. Well, he said it didn't make it better, right? Like he didn't, he yeah. didn't make the presidential debates much more fun to watch. I can't imagine it making it that much more fun because like, <laughs> That, those are one of the most sobering things. Like that's like <laughs> watching Meet the Press, and yeah. you kind of want your mind to be straight and narrow. <laughs> that moment. That's a good, um, good adjective. Sobering. Uh, I guess the idea is like uh, smoking can also calm you, but from what Lucas has learned, it does not have that effect on him. Uh, so great takeaway: don't do drugs. And Charles, next week we're going to be talking about season four, episode ten. The name of the episode is Crime and Punishment. What do you think? It's definitely going to be related to Dostoevsky somehow. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I'm going to guess that someone is going to come clean because that's what the novel is about. Mm. But otherwise, yeah, that's my only guess. Yeah, I think you're not too far off there, Charles. Uh, once again, Lucas, thank you so much for taking the time to watch the episode and give us your thoughts. Uh, we really enjoyed that. And Charles, I'll talk to you next week. All right. Talk to you next week. Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme music was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Lucas for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write in, you can reach us at Northern Overexposure Podcast at gmail.com, at Northern Overpod on Twitter. And if you like the show, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash northern overexposure podcast. And of course, thank you for listening.